Welcome back to the Thunder Buddies podcast. I am your host, Michael Martin, and I am joined by my Thunder buddy, Joe Masato, on this nice Tuesday afternoon after we got some good news uh, yesterday and today. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Michael. Um, good to be back on with you on the Thunder Buddies podcast. Thanks to Andrew Schlecht and Ryland Styles, two of the best in the business, for uh, making outstanding, I would say, guest ex- guest appearances. But I'm um, good to be good to be back on in the old seat. Glad to have you back. Yeah, but um, J Dub Jalen Williams was announced yesterday, making first team All Rookie. He is the first. Thunder player to do that since Russell Westbrook in 2008-2009. What were your overall thoughts on uh, J-Dub getting that um, notoriety and accomplishment? Yeah, I mean, obviously we knew it was coming after finishing second in the Rookie of the Year race to Paolo Bencaro. Um, I, I I think that the most fun from yesterday was, was just seeing the voting breakdown and um, sort of some, some head-scratching uh, logic, I think, or illogic. Illogic. I don't think illogic. We say illogical, but maybe I'll, I'll just say illogic. Um, so J Dub gets 99 first team votes, but the one voter who did not vote him first team was not the same voter who voted J Will instead first team, which is what I initially thought. So if you haven't seen the confusion, J Will, Jalen Williams of Arkansas, got one first team all-rookie vote. We all like Jay Will, cool story, everything, um, but kind of crazy that he got a first-team all-rookie vote. So I was assuming, okay, the name confusion thing really happened. They meant to vote for J-Dub, but then Howard Beck reported that the person who had Jay Will first-team all-rookie also had J-Dub first-team all-rookie. So someone voted for both of the Thunders' Jalen Williams first-team all-rookie, which I still think is an error somewhere. Um, so um, not not that we need to make fun of wh- whoever did it, but I am curious to see um, whose ballot that was. I double and triple and quadruple checked mine to make sure um, I was not uh, that person who who did that. But um, yeah, wrapping wrapping my head around the, the voting breakdown and the math of, okay, like what is what, um, it's like the meme with all the numbers and equations floating through the air. And, and um, yeah, I don't know, Michael, but I, I had fun of that. I thought it was hilarious. I was um, I tweeted something out and you just talked about it. I was wondering how many voters started scrambling. It's like, I need to find my email. I need to make sure this wasn't me. Make, make sure I didn't vote for the wrong guy. I would have had... I mean, it's inexcusable to begin with because if you're going to vote, it's required to do some research. Yeah. So if you question the spelling of the names, um, look it up. Just an easy Google search will do the trick. Um, but I was like, man, I'm the one person who would not have an excuse whatsoever. And it was uh, it was it was it was not me. Um, Jay Will got a hand uh, a handful of second. Did he get a handful of second team votes? I don't even remember. Remind me. I'll find it online here. Um, online. Online. On the internets. On the web. Uh, I've got it right here. Okay. So Jay will. Yeah, he got w- the one first team vote, which I still think there's some funny business going on. And he got five second team votes. Um, he was the only rookie who failed to make either first or second team who received the first team vote. 
That's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's different. I, I'd like to think that um, Howard Beck was the one who voted that, and that's why he reported it. He's just not saying it was him. <laughs> I think that would be a hilarious little mind game thing here. But we also got some news about some all-defensive teams, and uh, one of the guys that we're going to be talking about for player grades, Lou Dort, got some votes. Um, he received some. Isn't that correct? Yes. So um, all-defensive first and second teams um, were announced Tuesday afternoon. Um, unlike all-rookie which is just five rookies and five rookies, no matter positions, all defense is um, broken down into to two guards, two forwards, and one center. Um, so Lou Dort did not make either first or second team, but among guards, um, he, he did receive votes. He received seven second team votes, which basically if you take the two guards on first team, two guards on second team, he was then... Um, that's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So he's basically the ninth best defensive guard um, by the voting. And the, the thing I was most surprised to see, honestly, um, was Shea Gilgis Alexander not saying he wasn't deserving. I just don't know. Um, I kind of felt like because he was so good offensively that his uh, defensive leap sort of went under the radar on a national scale. Uh, but Shea actually received one first team all defense vote. Um, which really surprised me, and then one second team um, all defense vote, which which I think think makes a, a, a little more sense. But um, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a there's a big thunder backer in the media core that I'm not aware of who voted J. Will first team all rookie and voted Shea first team all defense. Justin Termini, he's getting the reparations <laughs> for it. He's coming back around. Oh boy. They finally, yeah, they finally beaten him down. But we're here to talk about Lou Dort and some player grades. So I wanted to ask you about Lou. What were your expectations for him going into this season? Lou Dort. My expectations were honestly more the same. Like when we talk about some Thunder players, we think of what they could be. We tried to project as as best as we can. But with Dort, I think we've all come and. Maybe not rightly so, but I think we've all come to the conclusion that, like, this is kind of who he is, right? Like, he's going to be a stalwart defensively, just sort of invaluable on that end of the floor. And then the give back is going to be some offensive inconsistency. His shot's going to come and go. The drives to the rim are going to come and go. The decision making is going to be questionable. Um, but all of that is excusable to some degree because of his defense. And all in all, we'll talk about it more specifically, but I kind of think that's who he was this year. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was hoping for maybe a little bit less um, usage offensively, um, retain the same elite, elite defense and add some efficiency around the rim and finishing from three. He maintained the great defense. I think that the monkey wrench of Chet being out this entire year definitely changed things just in terms of his usage. I think it would have gone down if Chet played this year. I think it will next year, but... I'd call the season a success for him, but what were some of your um, favorite moments for him this season? I, I, I totally just to touch one more thing on the on the usage. Um, it was down from last season mm -hmm. um, when it, it was he had a twenty three point three usage rate. Um, this year he had a nineteen point eight percent usage rate, which was actually uh, the second lowest of his career, only in his rookie season. Um, did he have a lower one? I am with you though that. I think that number should go down again next year. And if it if it doesn't, then, well, if it doesn't, that would lead me to believe there's some sort of injury we're not predicting. 
um, or something's gone wrong. So um, that's no that's no knock on Lou Dort. That's a just you know, as, as you add more guys, more talent, uh, people find more narrowed roles. So um, okay, yeah. What was the uh, what was the second question? Uh, the best moments of the season for him. The one that I'm going to remember from this season is um, in L.A. What he did to Kawhi Leonard. Um, where, you know, Leonard could not even get a shot off, basically had the ball for the duration of the shot clock. And I rewatched it um, this morning as I was preparing for the podcast. And, you know, so often, like, watch the playoffs now, like, it's like, you know, switch everything, it's hunting matchups, but, like, there was there was no switching with the Thunder there. Like, Lou Dort fought through a couple of screens, Kawhi couldn't shake him, um, and it was it was really a kind of a bizarre moment for Kawhi, who's um, so like battle tested to to kind of just freeze in that moment and and not even get a shot off. And um, another one similar to this that we don't talk about um, as much because it happened longer ago and it wasn't like you know as noticeable. But Lou had a had a similar defensive possession against Damian Lillard earlier in the year in Oklahoma City. Um, where Dame had a chance at a game-winning shot, Lou stayed with him step for step, and Dame's shot was was well short. So, um, just I'll, I'll remember kind of instead of the game-winning shots that we talk about with some players, it's the game-winning stops for Lou Dort. Absolutely, and uh, you mentioned that guys in the playoffs will hunt matchups defensively, and it was like Lou went on the other end, and he was hunting the offensive matchup to stay on Kawhi, but that yeah. was incredible. Um, he had some similar stretches against Luka that were really cool. Um, just on another end, I really enjoyed um, the fact that he basically averaged one offensive foul a game, drawing it off of opponents moving screens, and he said he'll never reveal his secrets, but we're, we're going we're gonna to figure it out. Yeah, I, I, think he, I think he admitted that his hair has something to do with it as well, because if you kind of, yeah. you know blow back like you know acknowledging that you got hit his hair's gonna fly a little it's gonna make it more dramatic but listen it's kind of like a it's kind of like a quirky part of the game where he's basically playing the game and it's it's not it's not exclusively taking advantage of the rules i think a lot of it is effort based that it's just so hard to screen him um and if you do it a second late or if you're you know only half-heartedly doing it um, he's playing so hard that that's going to bring attention to it and you're going to get called for an illegal screen. Second part of it is a good salesmanship job um, that he's doing. And as he keeps getting those calls, I think he's those calls are going to keep coming. It's like reputation-based, um, how we think of you know offensive players getting certain calls. I think Dort gets those defensively. Um, but you, you know, if you're just watching the game casually, it's like, okay, moving screen, thunderball, it's not a big moment in the game usually. It's just kind of, it's easy to look past. But just think, every single one of those ends in a possession in which the other team doesn't even get a shot off. Um, so it's it's really, really valuable how he just led the league by a mile in offensive fouls drawn. Yeah, and he gets an extra foul on the opposition. And it's something, because it's not like he's just randomly doing it he's going through so many screens i'd have to imagine he's one of the most screen players in the nba so it's just like a volume thing like at some point he's gonna get one whether or not you think that he's kind of um accentuating the contact i think that if you run through that many screens at some point someone's gonna screw up instead of moving one on you 
Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of it is volume based because yeah, I'd be hard pressed to. I mean, he's he's got to be at or near the top of the league and most screened defenders. So going to the ops. Oh well, one more thing of uh, positives. I enjoyed. This is not even a basketball thing. I enjoyed going to the press conferences and him tapping the mic every single time before he started talking, even though someone had already been using the mic before, so he knew what was on. It definitely became uh, habitual for Lou Dort to do that, and it really was funny because, you know, he would do it at home. He'd have a good sense of the mic. He would also do it on the road where, like, sometimes the mic would be more sensitive than in other places, and he'd kind of, like, jump back a little bit, like, whoa. Um, But, yes, the mic was always working, um, but I I hope Lou continues that because he – he gives himself a laugh and gives the rest of us a chuckle as well as he does that. One of my more embarrassing moments this season, I asked him a question. I was like, why didn't you tap the mic? And he was like, I did. And everyone in the room said I, he did. And I was like, oh, guess I just didn't see it. So the next time he came in and did a presser with us at home, he like looked at me and like tapped the mic like very <laughs> to show you I'm doing this right now. So great guy, Lou Dort. Um I don't really want to say all these nice things and then transition to his lowest moments, but unfortunately, that is what we're going to do. Yeah, the lows, the lows for me, I, I mean, this feels like forever ago, but he started the year just ice cold from from three, um, which really, you know, obviously Dort's offense is always going to be questioned, but it was questioned from the very beginning of this season. So his first 10 games, he was 11 of 57 from three. That's 19%. Um, So for for the season, he shot 33%, which is exactly what he shot last year and is exactly what his career average is. Below average, well below average by a a few percentage points. Um, But not 19% bad, which was, you know, 10 games. Still small sample, but... You know, Mark Dagnall kept reminding us it's early in the season. If the stretch was happening in the middle of the year, no one would be talking about it. But it was a glaring cold stretch. And those are those are just the stretches that, that Dort can get into, especially um, from three. I mean, finishing at the rim, that was pretty consistently bad um, throughout the season. But um, the, the only other one, not the only other one I'll mention, one other one I'll mention um, – there's that game. It was a home game against the Kings. Both he and Josh were benched for a good part of the second half. He he only played in 21 minutes in that game, uh, which was, you know, one of his five lowest minute totals of the season and was a minus 28. So, um, you know, that was kind of an isolated incident, but one that stood out in my mind. Yeah, I'd say um, the at-rim finishing and you said the three-point shooting, just overall shot selection because a lot of times it's not that he's just taking way too many shots. I think he could lower it by a couple, but it's just like which shots are you taking and when on the shot clock is it? But that's something that he um, kind of talked about a lot at his um, end-of-season presser with exit interviews. Yeah, acknowledging, uh, you know, admitting you have a problem is the is the first step. Um Lou Dort has has checked that box. Like, what annoys me about the Dort um, conversation is that, like, does he even know what a good shot is or how bad he's been finishing around the rim? It's like, yes, he's he's aware of that. It's just, I think the he especially is so hardwired as a competitor and gets 
they, I mean, Dagnall talks about how lost he gets in the game that, you know, I just think it's hard for him mid game and even mid season to make like significant changes to his game. Now, if he's making those same mistakes or same reckless drives or same clunky finishes around the rim next year, then, then yeah, it's like certainly fair to criticize that. And it's been fair to criticize it. Um, but to think that he's just like out there with no conscience whatsoever is incorrect. Yeah, and like we talked about a lot this season, it's kind of the fine, I'll do it mentality when the Thunder keep moving the ball and no one takes a shot, and he just kind of ends up being the guy with the hot potato at the last second who has to kind of put something up. So I'm not going to be too hard on him on that, but I do like the self-awareness with him. It's not like Dylan Brooks where he said after the playoffs, did you see this quote where they asked him about his shooting and his shot selection, what could have been different? He said, I think the coaches could have drawn up some more plays for me to make me more comfortable. Yeah, um, Dylan Brooks and Lou Dort have a lot of similarities in their game. However, I uh, I think Lou is a, is a tad more, uh, and by a tad I mean a mile more, like introspective and and aware of like what is good, what is bad, and his level of confidence, while high, is not like so high that he's blinded from reality. So um, that's a, uh, that's the distinguishing quality from Ludort and Dylan Brooks. Well, I need uh, your grade for the season. Um, Dean of uh, basketball, Joe Masato. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go a C just a flat C and I'll be interested to see what your, great is because at first even as i say it it might sound a little harsh but this goes back to what i'm saying c is average right you know not Mm -hmm. not great not not bad just middle of the road and from what i thought lou would give this team before the season to what he gave the team ultimately by the end of the season i think it was kind of a predictable year full of peaks and valleys for lou dort yeah i'd agree i had him at a a b minus a little bit higher than yours but it's in the same ballpark. I think the defense is just like, you're trying to weigh two completely different sides of the argument because if you look at his defense, you're like, A-plus this year. He was great. And then offensively, it's like, yeah, that's probably a C. So I'm trying to average it out. But um, Lou, I thought, was solid this year. And hopefully next year with Chet in the lineup and some more growth from him and along with other guys on the roster, he'll be even better. But um, what would it take for him to get a better grade next season slash what do you think he needs to work on? I think we've touched on a lot of the work on stuff, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, it would be it. it's more so finishing around the rim, what you mentioned, than his three-point shot. Like, I think I think his, you know, his three-point shot, like I said, while not great, has been more consistent all in all, where, like, you just can't afford to be that inefficient around the rim it's just it's just killer i mean um i've got a couple of stats for you he shot 52 percent from zero to three feet um among 245 qualified players that ranked 243rd so out of 245 players you can't be third worst around the rim um on that kind of volume with with that kind of you know role key role on a on a team and um, yeah, he makes up for it on the defensive end, but those are just whether first, I think he needs better to have better decision making 
on picking his spots and when he drives and kind of how the defense is set up. And second, when he does decide to do that, there there's just got to be it's like this unteachable thing maybe of just more finesse or being able to control his speed better because he is just barreling in there. And often that, that ends in like kind of a rough finish. Like there's no, there's, there's no like change of pace or, or no nuance really for him around the rim. Yeah. I'm not naive whenever I say this because I understand that he puts a lot of work in and it's not just like what we see in warmups, but the times in pregame where I have seen him warming up around the basket, it's always like pace drives where he's doing Euro steps, kind of going slower. And then you see him in the game and it's like he's shot out of a cannon. So I just work. I, I think about some of that stuff of just like what you're working on compared to what you're actually going to see in a game. And it's like, could you kind of mesh the two of those? Because he's finishing great in warmups, which obviously completely different environment where you're not really being guarded the same way, but just the speed at which he drives, I think, changes so much because like you said his finesse and touch whenever you lack some of that and you're going full speed you can just clank it right off the backboard yeah and there were times he got better at this he's not a great passer but improving upon his vision as well like just making the easy pass out of those drives like kicking to the corner like if there's nothing there rather than trying to force up a contested shot that leads to a fast break on the other end because because that's the other thing i mean a lot of these misses just they they result in the other team running and um and you're kind of scrambling on the defensive end. Um last thing I'll say on Dort, um, because I am uh I am I am seeing some Twitter reaction from his uh from this all defense voting and we kind of glossed over it. I just said, Oh, Lou Dort got one first team all defense vote, um, and he got seven second uh team votes. So there's a hundred voters. That means that eight of the one hundred had him on one of the two teams. Seven had him on second team, and I know one of them because it's me. Um, and there's a lot of people like just stunned that he didn't make one of the two teams. I I knew he wasn't going to make one of the two teams just from seeing other people's ballots so far and everything like that. I don't think it's a crime that he didn't make. One of the two teams, I just think it's a product of, we've talked about this a ton, defense is hard to judge. It's like, you got to see it. And to see it, you got to be on TV. You got to be what everyone's talking about. So like, it's so reputation-based. And while Lou does have a reputation around the league, like, it's not as loud as like um, the Drew Holidays or the Marcus Smarts or, you know, guys like that who are on these teams. Yeah, and there's just all these other guys who are really talented. It's not like we're in a a weak spot with all defense where it's like, well, you can just kind of place anybody in there. There's a lot of great defenders around the league. I mean, guys who didn't make it. Marcus Smart, he won Defensive Player of the Year last year. Mm -hmm. Didn't make any of the teams. Mikhail Bridges, Jimmy Butler, Herb Jones, um, Matisse Thibel, Jalen Brown, all these guys. Um, DeJounte Murray, Paul George, and some of these, you know, it is just uh, the amount of games they played, but those you could make an all defensive team of just like stoppers with just the guards who didn't make the team. So I don't think there's any shame in that. And I think a lot of all defense stuff, like you said, it is reputation. You have to kind of like put your two years in before you're even like eligible almost with a lot of voters. And uh, it comes down to some team defense success and the thunder have the glaring weakness at the rim, which isn't Dort's fault, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is a lot of, you know, we when we talked about like 
my voting process. We talked about like group think. I think there is a lot of group think with this vote. Um, so like first team guards, Caruso and Holiday. Everyone knows the Bucks. Everyone sees the Bucks. Everyone knows like how important Drew Holiday is. So that's kind of an easy one. Caruso, you know, everyone thought the Bulls would be like better offensively than defensively, yet they were like terrible offensively, but had a much better defense. And he was a big reason behind that. Um, so he kind of had a campaign that everyone was talking about throughout the year. Derek White, I think he was helped because he's on the same team as Marcus Smart, who, like you said, won the award last year. And everyone's looking around like, oh, my gosh, Derek White's been even better than Marcus Smart this year defensively. So that uh, bolsters his case. Also, big market, big team that everyone talks about and everyone watches. And the other guard that made second team is Dylan Brooks, who is like the most notorious villain in the NBA these days. So part of it is just like notoriety. Exactly. But let's move on to a guy who uh, has some notoriety. He is known as someone who saved basketball, Aaron Wiggins. No, no small feat saving basketball. Not at all. And I remember I asked him at uh, exit interviews about that. He's like, yeah, they've, that, that's a meme that's been around since college at Maryland. I'm like, really? But he is, he's in uh, tune, in touch, on the pulse of all those memes Aaron Wiggins about himself. So if you put something out there about Aaron Wiggins saving basketball, I think there's a, there's a good chance he's going to see it. But what were some of your preseason expectations for him? Well, I... Uh... I made a bold prediction that he would lead the team in, in games played. That did not happen. That's kind of factoring in like, oh, some guys might miss yeah. because of injury and, you know, end of the year lottery watch, but everything like that. Um, but I bring that up because I thought he would play. I, I thought he would be a consistent member of the rotation. Um, and he was. Um, I I was a big Aaron Wiggins fan last year. It'd be hard pressed to, you'd be hard pressed to find a, person who isn't a fan of Aaron Wiggins game. So it's not like I'm on um, an island or anything like that. But I don't know, kind of similar to Dort, but maybe even more positive of like, hey, this guy could like really become a player. Like I know he was the 55th pick in the draft. Second round picks usually don't make it and had a really promising rookie year. And I think if you were thinking that before the season, you're only more emboldened now to say that like this guy's a legitimate NBA player. Yeah, I mean, we saw a lot of guys who kind of trailed off in their sophomore season, like Trey Mann and JRE, but Wiggs was good once again this season, just like Josh, and um, I had the same expectations for him, Ben Staple, who could hopefully get more minutes throughout the season, but um, it was definitely up and down for him, but moving on to his best moments, I think we're probably going to have something similar, the streak. The streak. That was the best moment. Um, Aaron Wiggins... The Thunder started 8-0 and in games in which Aaron Wiggins started. So um, it it became it became like, you know, when you're tracking who's in the starting lineup, whenever Aaron Wiggins was in the starting lineup, it's like, is the streak going to live on? And there were some times where um, it looked very much in doubt. Wasn't one of those the game they just destroyed Boston by 30 That, that was points? one of them. We said yeah, that's the test. <laughs> yeah, Wiggins starts. Um, no Shea. Um, and it's like, oh, my gosh, this guy is just unbeatable. Um, it wasn't until January 30th against the Golden State Warriors that the Thunder lost a game in which Wiggins started. Um, overall, 14 games he started. The Thunder went 11-3. and three. So that kind of that storyline was the, was the best part to track. I understand. Everyone understands. It's not as simple as it sounds. But that does not mean it's not fun to talk about because it is. 
It is. And I think two of the three losses that the Thunder had this season with him starting were to the Warriors. So it's pretty interesting That's right. that. And then um, I think you asked Sam about that. About uh, Has Aaron mentioned that to you? Was that something you asked? Yeah, I uh, I told Sam that they would have gone like 78 and four if Aaron Wiggins would have started uh, every game. And uh, he laughed and talked about, you know, the, the player Wiggins is and everything like that. So the, I don't know if this is his, um, the disappointment or, or whatever, but like the, the one thing yeah. that's hard to, to know with him is like, are we on the outside overvaluing Wiggins? Because like there's, there's times during the year you're like, why is Aaron Wiggins still on the bench or why is he not coming in until the second half or why is so-and-so playing ahead of Aaron Wiggins? And there's got to be some reasons behind that. Um, and I think that's why they, they wanted to push back on the narrative a little bit that they'd be the best team in the history of basketball. If Aaron Wiggins started um, every game, because there is more to it than that. But um, I think the only, the only disappointment is, is maybe what he'd, didn't do or show that we couldn't see uh that sometimes kept him off the floor yeah i'd say we just didn't see enough of him i mean he even had that one game which is like the complete aaron wiggins experience of like not playing in the first half at all and then he plays the entire uh, fourth quarter yeah not playing in the third quarter either i think he played all but like three seconds of the fourth quarter and the thunder make a huge comeback he was like a plus 20 in that game i I forget exactly which one that was it might have been against like sacramento in one of those i think maybe I forget as well. It was it was a home game, right? It was a home game like right at the end of the season. But um, yeah, he averaged 10 points per game, four rebounds, 1.6 assists, 51, 34, 89 shooting splits when starting. So I thought that was great. And then, yeah, just weird rotation stuff where I don't want to say like I'm hating on somebody whenever I want wigs to play over them. But just I was perplexed anytime Lindy got minutes over him unless Lindy was just on fire. I was very confused about that because I just think that in a bucket when you have just evaluating who has the most skills and the most talent who can help you. I think that Wiggins, it's not very close, at least in my eyes. Yeah. My, the only plausible theory I can even think of, and this is dumb to say about a second round pick in his second NBA season, but is that the Thunder kind of knows what they have in Aaron Wiggins and, and what he can do. And there's other guys that they're still exploring is the, is the word that they use. Um, so maybe that's it, you know, giving some more developmental time to guys to to see what they have. And, um, you know, he's not at this level yet, but we all compare Aaron Wiggins to, to Kenrich Williams. You know what you're getting. There aren't any questions. He's a stabilizer. He's, you know, going to play hard and not make many mistakes. And that that's kind of what Aaron Wiggins is. He's like, I think we think of him, or it's easy to to see him play and think, man, that guy's a vet, like, he just knows what he's doing out there, um, even though he's in his second year. Um, that's that's my only theory, and it's almost certainly incorrect. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll 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 see how much Aaron Aaron Wiggins plays next year. Yeah, maybe I'm just blind to it and can't see it, but I feel like if we see more minutes out of him, maybe we can see if there are any of those warts out there. I think that's what you see with younger players: the more usage and minutes you push into them, I think that it reveals more of who they are as a player. So maybe we're just getting the best sample size of Wiggins every single game or in a lot of moments where we're only seeing the bright spots. I guess that's the only, I guess, um, knock or other side of the discussion I could have. Yeah, and um, I'll kind of give you the good and the bad that I 
uh, wrote down. So the good, looking at it today, I think I will even like downplayed how good of a how efficient he was. Like his shooting splits, he shot fifty one thirty nine eighty three, um, just you know remarkably efficient. On the opposite side of that, though, despite shooting thirty nine percent from three. He shot 29% on corner threes. Um, and those, uh, he only shot 34% on corner threes a year ago. Corner threes accounted for 46% of his attempts. So it's it's kind of like flip-flop. That means he's a much better three-point shooter above the break than he is from the corners, which goes away from conventional thinking um, and conventional trends. And, you know, he, he's still taking quite a bit more threes from the corners than he is from above the break. So uh, he, he's got to improve as a corner three-point shooter. That's a good point because that's a spot they're going to have him in a lot. So you need to make those shots where you are. And then, like you mentioned, his improvement as a shooter, 30% from three last season, 39% this season. I'd say that's a pretty good jump. And then just I like him as a, a cutter. He has great chemistry with Josh Giddy. He's a winning basketball player. He's flexible in lineups. Chris Vernon of the Mismatch said this. He said, just don't play guys who suck. And Aaron Wiggins, to me, just doesn't overwhelm you with one specific outlier skill or talent as a basketball player. But at the same time, he doesn't have any major flaws. And you can plug him into all types of lineups. Um, He can play against multiple matchups. And just in the simplest way to put it, he just helps you win basketball games. Yeah. Doesn't have the highest ceiling, but has a pretty high floor. Um, Is just a a role player who who can fit in on... Um, a good team, I think. I mean, his his rookie year last year, he plays 24 minutes per game. That's down to 18 and a half minutes per game this year, but that's 18 and a half minutes per game on a 500 team. Um, I think he's he's a guy that could you know be there, you know, seventh or eighth or ninth man uh, moving forward. Yeah, he had six minutes less per game this season, and I think some of that's just attributed to guys like Isaiah Joe coming in, J Dub, and others. You get a healthier season from Shea, Giddy, Dort. So I want to get more minutes for him, but there's also just the part of it where it's like there's just a, only a certain amount of minutes. You can't give everybody 40 minutes a game. What what grade do you have on Mr. Wiggins? Oh, boy. This was um, one of these that I kind of went back and forth about because I know I love Aaron Wiggins. I'll give him um, an A-. minus. If there was an island, you'd be kicked off, Michael. I gave him an A-. Um... Just for a minus, just because it's like two points worse. That's, that's right, a minus. <laughs> I, I have banned you from Aaron Wiggins it's, Island. It's, it's you gave him like a ninety-three, and I gave him a ninety-five. Well, I'm yeah, I'm sure his parents would be very upset with me as a teacher if he saw his report card and then saw yours, and they're like, "What is? What are you doing to my son here?" But yeah, I think that Aaron Wiggins is awesome. Um, a minus, not his fault. A minus because we just didn't see him enough, but. I think that's the main point of improvement that and then the corner three shooting. But is there anything else that you think that, you know, he could really work on this summer? Um, no, I mean like the, uh, the, the corner threes obviously. And then, um, just developing physically, getting a little bit stronger. Um, he's listed at six, six to me. He, he still doesn't always look that tall out there. Um, but just with some of the matchups that he's going to be handed, um, anything he's sacrificing on the height end uh, just to get physical and, and stronger and to use the Thunder's word a little bit nastier out there. Got to use force. Um, development force. is not linear. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of some other ones. 
Um, that that that's it. But uh, we'll move on to Dario. Those are the big ones. Those are the big ones. You get the, those are tattooed on Mark's like fists, like it's love and hate, and it says development is not linear. He has some really wide knuckles, but that's not the point. Okay, on to Dario Saric. Wow. <laughs> what were, what were Interesting. Your, I might have to cut that. Okay, expectations <laughs> for Dario Saric after he was traded to the Thunder at the deadline. You know, we didn't see the biggest, you know, sample size with him, but in his limited time, what did you think or what did you expect from him whenever he was traded to the Thunder at the deadline? Yeah, I um so so first when he was traded, the the first question I had was is he is he actually going to be on the team? Is he going to report or are they just going to, you know, to, to release him and he's going to be on the buyout market to, to help someone. Um, but then it became clear that, that he was going to, to stay around and, and be a part of the program. And um, so I didn't have a lot of like expectations other than, okay, he's a, he's a pros pro who's been around and is just going to be kind of another, uh, you know, vet and another big they could have off the bench. And, Really, that's exactly what he was. Like, I think he he came in and his biggest attribute was just like not messing anything up, realizing it's a young developmental team, not pouting if he's like, you know, not getting more minutes. Like there was a five game stretch where he had four DNPs, but then he plays the next five games and some big minutes. So um, I thought he came in and, and did his job. I'd agree with that. I thought that he would be sort of a moose replacement. He's not the shooter that Mike Muscala is, but he has some other offensive skills that Mike just doesn't have in his bag as a ball handler, as a facilitator, playmaker. I think he moves a little bit better on defense. It's not like night and day. It's like a 2% increase, but it's it's something. But I was um, definitely excited to see what he could do. I didn't know if he'd get bought out either. Um, I expected some extra spacing, but yeah, he, he's not Mike Muscala, but I really did enjoy... This he's moving on to his best moments. A couple of those games where he had like two straight and ones in back-to-back possessions. He had like a 9-0 run, and it felt like he was the only other guy on the Thunder to who could get to the line in games like that other than Shea. Yeah, he had a he had a 14 and 10 game that stood out second to the last game of the season um, against the Jazz. He he was really good. Um, he's yeah, he's not Mike Muscala. I I thought like you that 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 was kind of like the the easy comp, just who he's coming in and, and replacing. Um, there's more to his game off the bounce than Mike has, but Mike is, I think, a much better uh, just spot-up shooter and more reliable shooter. I think Mike's a better fit um, on this th- Thunder team and kind of what they need because um, they, they don't need as much off the bounce or creation-wise from you know a player who's coming in like charged than they do just a, you know, person who knows his role. It's a very narrowed role and he can, he can knock down shots like Mascala. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there were Dario charge was, was fine. I'd say even, you know, more, more than fine. Like he, uh, he did everything that was asked. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it was a very small sample and I think we've pretty much covered it. I also enjoyed the uh, laptop analogy at exit interviews. Where he oh, I wrote that down. I forgot to say it. That was that was his best moment comparing the Thunder to a good laptop. I I wish that like we got Sam to talk about that for like twenty minutes about just laptops in general and just electronics. And it's like we asked him about comparing the organization to a laptop, and he just starts on a giant thing. He's like, "Well, when I met Steve Jobs back in the day." <laughs> 
Here's the beautiful part of, of that comparison, though, that Sharich made, is you can literally do it with anything. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to pick things on my desk right now. Desk. The Thunder is like a good desk, you know, sturdy, reliable, <laughs> uh, coffee mug. Just, yeah, just, it's just so, so good, you know. It's what a coffee mug. Um, y- you could do it with anything. And he just chose laptops because there was a bunch of laptops in front of him. So um, it was, it was, uh, it was a moment I will, I will truly, truly not forget. If I, I probably won't remember one thing Dario Saric did on the court for the Thunder 25 years from now, but I will never forget the laptop analogy. It reminds me of an Anchorman, uh, the I love lamp scene where he's like, you, do you love anything? He's like, I love the lamp. It's like, <laughs> really? It's just like, yes. But Dario, uh, what? it's a weird grade, but what sort of grade would you give him for his uh, limited sample size here? I gave him a nice B. Um, he did not, I, I mean, overwhelm in, in either direction, but I, I gave him a little above average just because, um, you know, that's not an easy spot to be put in. Um, the team he left, the team that he actually played in the finals with two years ago is still playing. Um, so I can see if there's, like, I totally understand some pout, some pouting or resentment Um and golly, given the sun's depth, Dario Sharge might be playing for them right now if he was still on the team. So um, I thought he handled the situation pretty admirably. I also had, had him at a B. It kind of reminded me, I almost wanted to do like a pass-fail grade for him on like some of those weird college classes that you have, like, I don't know, the the gym ones or anything athletically where it's like, if you just show up, you pass. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to give him that, although... Seems like it'd be uh, kind of shortchanging him because I thought he was pretty good for some stretches um, where he helped offensively and, you know, he fit right in. Like you said, he's unproblematic and the Thunder offense isn't necessarily for everybody. So for him to come in and just kind of mesh right in and work with the guys, I thought was pretty impressive. Yeah. And the last thing on Sharich, um, one of the questions you asked as we were preparing is like, what what are the chances he could be back or what justification mm-hmm. could you make? I just, I don't know about you, and I don't have any intel on this. Um, he's an unrestricted free agent. I don't think it was like so much of a just seamless fit and oh my gosh, like we have to keep this guy around. I, I just think with the position the roster's in, there's already a bit of a crunch. Um, they're going to add a first round pick. Who knows? They could add more than that in the draft, basically like they did last year, buying a pick uh, to to move up in Usman Jang and still keeping their pick at twelve to to draft J Dub. For all I know, they could do something similar to that. I just I just don't think there's room. I think a far more likely example, and I'm just bringing this up because we mentioned his name, is bringing Mike Muscala back. He's got a team option. Um, he's not playing at all for the Celtics. If they decline that team option. Um, he's going to be a free agent signed for the minimum. Um, and, um, he really liked being here. The Thunder really liked him. I I think like if they go that route, um, to add some front court depth and to add like a vet, it would be Muscala over Sharich. Yeah, I can see that. I'd, I'd prefer that too. And I'm glad you talked about sort of the log jam with all the bigs because, Right now on the roster, you have Chet, Uzman Jang, Poku, Jerry, Jay Will, and you know Ken Rich is going to get minutes at the five now after this season on top of guys like 
Wiggins, J-Dub, um, Josh, who can all play the four, too, and the Thunder want to play a little bit smaller and less conventionally, I think it'd just be a hard sell for him to get any minutes. And I think that Dario's not in a spot in his career like Mike where you want to be a mentor and just kind of be around the team and help out when needed. I think that he's a guy who definitely needs to get out there and play some more basketball and wants to do so. Yeah, and just like the impetus behind the trade was not to acquire Dario Sharch. It was just yeah. to get a second-round pick. Um, and that's what the Thunder got out of this trade. They saved the Suns some luxury tax money. Um, although now I, I don't even know if the Suns would care about that with, with Ishby as money. But um, yeah, it was it was just to get a second-round pick. So they're they're not tied at all to, to Sharch in any way. That thing was hilarious with Matt Ishby and Jokic, though. Could you imagine, like, Clay Bennett doing that? The Thunder's got, like, um, I mean, Clay Bennett is, like, adored within mm-hmm. the organization, but, like, outside the organization, um, people might, you know, know his name, especially he was pretty high profile in the move from Seattle um, and everything like that, but probably wouldn't even recognize them sitting courtside. So just to have like some of these like high profile owners like Balmer and Ishbia and Cuban and, um, you know, like A-Rod sitting courtside in Minnesota and then Clay Bennett's just there casually sitting courtside. No one knows who he is. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I was just thinking like there, there's no way this would happen in Oklahoma City. I wonder which person more people in Oklahoma City would identify and be able to say who that is between Mark and Clay Bennett if you just showed them a picture and said who is this man I I think it would be Clay Bennett that would be my guess well that's that's what we're going to work on all summer our, our man on the street interviews it's a, it's a good it's a good question Clay Bennett is just kind of like a more of an Oklahoma icon I think than than Mark um been around longer so there's a there's a wider swath of people who would know him. I think he's involved with OU too. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was on the board of regents at OU and um, known family. So, yeah, I I think Mark Degnall would really only be known by by Thunder fans. I mean, even Thunder fans, it's sometimes hard. <laughs> but you're going to see me in man on the street interviews. I'm going to be in a, a full suit, sweating, um, just profusely as i try to interview people and chase them down man on the street style and it's who, like who, who is, is this who is this who is this man yeah they're just gonna think i actually just have amnesia and i can't remember who people are they're not gonna go this is like a news thing they're like this guy is just like he's just running around with pictures of guys in his hands yelling who is this who am i yeah maybe don't do that i, I think that would attract the wrong kind of attention you're not a all publicity is a good publicity person no i i uh I think someone might might do like a welfare check on you if if that happens more so than like you're you're trying to create content. Well, this is why you you know I bounce my ideas off you. <laughs> you you're able to um, kind of decipher the the good from the bad, the gold, and then the rest of the rocks over there, and yeah. just go, Michael. You had a hundred ideas. Three of these are good. <laughs> yeah, I'm just just looking out for you, Michael. But anyways, what else do you have going on? What can you plug before we get out of here, Joe? Um, so let's see here. I'm doing a, uh, I have a mailbag that I worked on, got some questions. I'll, I'll touch on some of the defensive team stuff. Um, all NBA gets announced tomorrow night. So Shay is going to be first team all NBA. Um, I'm going to have a story 
uh, on that, kind of with a cool anecdote that Sam Presti shared on Media Day. Don't want to, or on Exit Interview Day. Don't want to spoil it here because I want you to read the story. Um, And then, yeah, other random stuff coming up. I mean, we're this is Tuesday. This is a we're one week away from the lottery, so um, things are about to get interesting. Things are definitely about to get interesting. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We're going to have the last part of grades on Friday, and then we'll definitely get into some draft stuff because we'll know the lottery um, results by then. We can get into guys at that range where the Thunder are, whether you know they're at the bottom, top of the draft. It won't matter. We're going to have all types of information. But, Joe, thanks again for coming on with me. Thank you all for listening to the Thunder Buddies podcast. Make sure to like, subscribe, comment, rate us five stars on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your, fo- uh, your podcasts. We are the Thunder Buddies at ThunderBudPod on Twitter, and we'll be back again for more Thunder and NBA talk on Friday. Friday.